Welcome back to season two of Soundlore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we sound off about recent scholarship, ideas, and current happenings from the fine folks who've crossed paths with our department. My name is Jeremy Reed, and this week's podcast episode is a replay of the 2022 Richard Dorson Memorial Lecture given by Dr. Terry Guttel. Terry is a professor of folkloristics at the University of Iceland, although presently he comes to us from a visiting post at the University of New Mexico. A native Rummy hailing from Birmingham, England, Terry is widely published in both English and Icelandic on a variety of topics ranging from Old Norse literature and Eddic poetry to comedy and masking traditions. His lecture in this episode discusses the effects of commercialization on the essentially local and seemingly long-standing Mamothone's masking tradition based in the village of Mamoida, high up in the mountains of Sardinia, a tradition which involves adult male participants who dress themselves up in dark skin costumes, female headscarves, and hand-carved black masks, along with several kilos of bells which are strapped to their bodies. We highly encourage that you find a visual reference as you listen along to this episode. Named for Dr. Richard M. Dorson, this series honors the Indiana University professor credited with establishing folklore studies as an academic discipline in the United States. Professor Dorson directed the IU Folklore Institute for many years, beginning in 1956, and he later chaired the folklore department until his death in 1981. Enjoy this lecture in his memory. I'd like to start by thanking you all for having me here. It is on, isn't it? Okay, good. It's of course a great, great honor to be invited to give the Dawson Lecture. And particular thanks uh, due to Ray Cashman, to Solomar Otero and Angus Burke for getting this whole thing organized, which is a little bit more complicated than you might imagine. I'm well aware of the background of this lecture series and looking at the names of the past lecturers who've stood here talking to you, must admit that I feel a bit like a sort of diminutive British tourist standing with binoculars looking at Mount Rushmore. Anyway, as some of you will know, and you've just heard, masks and mumming activities and questions of performance have long been something that, I, that have interested me. And of course, they seem to have been something that Richard Dawson, too, was also interested in judging by the fact that he invited Roger Abram to write a special chapter on folk drama for folklore and folk life. But in my own case, as you heard a little bit before, the interest goes back to the fact that I was involved in drama from about the age of seven and went on then to study drama and theater arts at university, later qualifying as a teacher of drama and English. And my PhD thesis, as you heard just now, dealt with the origins of drama in the Nordic countries. And that in turn led to considerations of not only the performative aspects of ancient and more recent texts with a background in orality, but also the nature, the functions, the background, and the meaning of masking traditions, not only those found in the Nordic countries, but also those in neighboring countries like Ireland and Scotland. Henry Glass's All Silver and No Brass, like Halberton Story's Christmas Mumming in Newfoundland, and Carsten Bregenhoes, Helig Trekonges Lup i Poagase were inspirational to me in all sorts of ways, and not least in their suggestions of how to approach such traditions. And they've, of course, been joined since by the works of other scholars like Ray Cashman, and not least when it comes to the analysis of performance, Richard Schechner and the late, great John Miles Foley. 
Indeed, as time went on, as the subjects I was teaching and writing about became ever more diverse, reaching into stand-up, political protest, immigrant traditions, school initiation rituals, it became increasingly obvious that they all centered in some way around the question of performance of one kind or another. And this is something that also applies to the subject that I would like to talk about today, namely the Mamatones and the Isiatores traditions of the little village of Mamayada in Sardinia and the crises that the participants are presently facing in their tradition as it's being turned into a sort of national symbol. Now, my interest in this subject goes back to a week-long Erasmus teaching exchange that I undertook with the University of Cagliari in Sardinia in the early autumn of 2018, pre-COVID times. I'd heard vague mention of these traditions some time ago when we were working on our Nordic mumming project, and I asked my host, Dr. Veronka um, Suzuki, whether there would be a chance to investigate these customs a little further while I was there. What followed was a day of field work up in the mountains, looking at the relatively recently established Museum for Mediterranean Mumming and interviewing its curator, Mario Paffi. After tasting some local wine, as one does, and eating some roasted suckling pig, as one does, we then visited the headquarters of the cultural association that runs the oldest of the masking groups in the village, Pro Loco. Here we examined the costumes and other related artifacts and recorded interviews with two long-term participants, Gionino Poggioni, who was the earlier president of the association, and then Bastiano Cano, who's been a Mamatone from the age of seven. And with the ever-trusty Veronka serving as a translator. Several days later, the university arranged for me to publicly interview another long-term participant, the bus driver Jesuino Grego, who has been also carrying out his research into the traditions. And a postgraduate student at the University, Luca Vincius, has in, since been translating the interviews for me and helped with gathering additional material. And endless letters have been going back and forth over the last few months. I'd like to express my heartfelt thanks to all of these people for their patience, especially with me, and their support. But what, though, is so interesting about these particular traditions and why should I think I have anything useful to say about them? Now, one thing that's immediately striking to me when I got there was the fact that until very recently, hardly anything seemed to have been written about these customs that was not in Italian, meaning that in academic terms, they tended to be very much an in-house matter. She very much like many of the guising traditions that we find all over Northern Europe. It's the local people who write about them rather than outsiders. The main exceptions were these articles, the latter three of which I only came across about two weeks ago by accident. In a moment, I'll show you a short film which should give you a good introduction to the traditions in question and exactly what they involve. And as you see here, there are numerous, to my mind, intriguing parallels can be found with the kinds of tradition that I've been researching in Northern Europe with others. And these suggest that there's good reason to consider these traditions in a much wider context than just that of the Mediterranean. And not least when it comes to questions relating to the function, the role, the behavior, and the experience. Cultural background is, of course, another matter. 
And as I'll show, in recent years, both the meaning and the nature of these traditions have been changing in various degrees, both as a result of touristic in interest and under the influence of various kinds of international cooperation. This means that there's good reason, I think, for all of us who've been working with such traditions to compare notes drawing on the range of different viewpoints that have come about with regard to mumming traditions over time, but partly as a result of the different circumstances that surround each particular tradition. Indeed, this can hopefully offer a few new, fresh insights for all of us about the nature and the role of all kinds of tradition, past and present. The brief film I show in a moment involving both sound and vision shows, I think, better than any words what exactly is going on in this little village in the present time. The setting is high up in the mountains of Barbagia in central Sardinia, an area once closely associated with bandits and kidnapping and feuding. And here we have, without question, an area that has preserved older traditions for a long time, a bit like Setesdal in west southern Norway, what Bengta Klintberg has called a relictomrode, a place that keeps relics. Indeed, it's one of the few areas in the island where Sardinian, rather than Italian, is still spoken in local dialects on a daily basis. Now, uh, Mamayada has little more than about 2,500 inhabitants, a figure that's changed actually very little over the last 100 years. The heart of the tradition is closely connected with bonfires and the 17th of January, the day of Sant'Onia de Suo, St. Anthony the Abbot, also known as St. Anthony the Great, who, according to local legend, stole fire from hell with the help of a pig. And yeah, I know about that one. This is very, very odd. It involves not only one, but two types of what some call geysers and other mummers, others mummers, in other words, masked figures. The mamatonas are easily recognizable. In addition to their hand-carved black masks or visera made of wild pear wood, their inversed sheepskin coats like those worn the right way around in the past by shepherds, and then the dark velvet tunics that they wear beneath these, they also wear hand-tanned hand -tanned leather shoes and a black Sardinian coppola or bere, over which they have a woman's headscarf. Strapped tightly around them are around 25 to 30 plus kilos of brass bells with bone clappers, which are referred to as salcaragia, meaning the load or the burden. Not only restricting breathing by up to 50%, these regularly leave bruises behind on those who bear them. As you saw in the film, these figures do not say a single word and pay no attention to their audiences. Lined up in two rows, they have a carefully synchronized movement, twisting and jumping in time alternately to the left and the right, accompanied by this rhythmic stamping of their feet and the clamor of the bells. The occasional triple jump they make is conducted by one of the so-called Isuatores, who has the role of leader. Now, the Isuatores themselves, who walk beside them and in front of them and behind the Mamatores, are very different in terms of costume, character, and then interaction with those watching. As you'll hear later on, their costume's the one that's changed most, probably, over time. 
Referred to as Turkish clothing, it also includes a black, the black Sardinian beret, along with this colored neckerchief tied around the neck, baggy trousers, a white linen shirt, a pair of black woolen gaiters, and a traditional red jacket. Over the shoulder runs a belt made of leather and fabric with small bells attached to it, and around the waist is a black, is a dark colored embroidered shawl which hangs over the left leg. In recent years, one of the two Mamatones groups, Proloco, has also taken up the use of this white, plain, visera crara mask known as Santo or Santa or Olympia, which means simply clean. This has replaced the use of a white cloth or handkerchief, which is apparently uh, a revival of an earlier tradition, they say. The key piece of equipment, though, for the Isuatoras, however, is their lasso, or their soha, which is used to ensnare members of the public, and, of course, particularly women, who have then to either give them a kiss or a drink of wine to be released. Now, in its present form, this procession itself would have been classified by Herbert Halpert under the heading of an, a formal outdoor movement, rather than the kind of house-visiting usually encountered as part of a large number of Nordic, Germanic, Irish, and Scottish guising traditions. Tom Pettit would thus have referred to it as an excursion rather than an incursion into houses, something that takes place outdoors in the street, involving both, uh, both convivial and mischievous interactions as part of what must be regarded as a kind of encounter between two groups, the participants and then the audience and something which, in the case of the Isuatoris at least, does involve some kind of interaction or some, some kind of exaction um, from, the, from the watchers. And I'll come back to the gender aspects of the tradition a little bit later on. Now, in terms of timing, as I mentioned earlier on, the tradition in, this, in its most genuine form, as people see it, does take place on the 17th of January, following on from other customs that take place the night before, on the eve of St. Anthony. According to one of the more recent researchers, Rita Mele, on the 16th, local people go out to collect dry branches, tree roots, and especially logs of oak, which are then used to build bonfires in different parts of the town. In the late afternoon, a priest then leads women and children clockwise three times around the main bonfire that's been built outside the central church of Beata Virginia Assunta, the Blessed Virgin Mary of the Assumption, the patron saint of the town, followed then by the image of St. Anthony, which is kept in the church. After this, the central bonfire has been lit. Fire from that is taken away to light all of the other 30 to 40 bonfires that have been built all around the village, a sort of need fire idea as we get in some places of Scotland and Ireland, I think. All of which have become, they all become the center of various social gatherings, accompanied, of course, by local wine, sweets, and cookies. The fires are that kept burning all night prior to the visits that take place the following afternoon from these two groups of Mamatones and the Isuatoris. Now, as I just noted, nowadays there isn't just one but two Mamatones processions that take place simultaneously on the 17th, both starting at the aforementioned church before then separating to run through the upper and the lower parts of the town. These processions are then in the hands of the two cultural associations, Proloco and Atsene Bekoi, 
both of which are based in their walled headquarters, roughly very much in the center of the town. And annually, they alternate with who takes which part of the town on the 17th. Now, I might add that the headquarters, where the costumes are all carefully stored with a great deal of respect, are largely closed to outsiders. There's a certain holiness about them, which is beginning to change a little bit. It is as a, yes, changing in the last couple of years or so. But with regard to the names of the two groups, each of which has now got over 200 members, that of the older original pro loco, literally meaning in favor of the local community, it's a name that's, that's commonly used in Italy by various local associations engaged in community support. Atsenebekoi, the second group, came into being in around 1975 and is named after two of the main organizers. And I'll say more about the origin of these two groups later on. Now, as mentioned earlier, the custom itself starts with the donning of, of the costumes in the early afternoon of the 17th. It's something that's traditionally taken place away from public view within the respective headquarters and is evidently taken extremely seriously by all of those involved. The seriousness is seen in the way that the donning of skins and bells and masks is regularly described in both the written sources and the words of the participants themselves. Giannino Poggioni sees it as the peak, peak moment after a previous period of what he sees as being psychological tuning. Mario Paffi, who runs the museum, describes it as an abandonment of personal identity, a ritual metamorphosis or transformation. Rita Miller talks of it in terms of a symbolic transmutation through a solemn ritual, at once sacred and profane. Giacino Grego, meanwhile, talks about a form of regeneration going on. And the commentary of the introductory film shown in the local museum reflects the same idea, underlining that a mamatone or of mamayada is not an individual nor a character. He doesn't belong to carnival figures nor to the comedy of art. Behind the mask, there's no face waiting to be revealed, no physiognomy, no personality of a person being given. A total loss of identity occurs when lives the experience of metamorphosis. The masquerade absorbs one into, one's, into itself. And the putting on of the masquerade for the first time is a sacred rite, and the experience is one of radical mutation. Uh, Giannino Poggioni told me, when the mask is put on the face, everything changes for the masked man. There's a completely different world that appears in front of you, an emotion, an engagement. The Mamatoni now sees the world in a completely different way. He feels powerful, important, but also responsible. He has interior strength, inner forces, capable of leaving all fears behind. He can see the world from a different dimension. Now, what's clear is that for those involved, even today, the main tradition on the 17th of January is much closer to ritual than play, if we consider Richard Schechner's performance scale. It's something enforced by attitudes to the handmade masks, which are made or adapted to fit the face exactly, and are then passed down within the family as members of the younger generation take on the roles earlier performed by their parents and their grandparents. Indeed, some of these masks used in the procession are now over 40 years old. 
Jeswino Gregel, who has been an Isatore for much of his life, says that he sees his white mask as a sacred object. It's something he keeps in a special box at home. Yes, he can show it to other people, he can let them touch it, but he'll never, ever let them put it on. And then, of course, we have the physical effect of strapping on the bells, which takes place around two in the afternoon and apparently needs the assistance of two experienced Isatore's helpers who aim to avoid the wearer suffering any lasting physical harm over the course of the ritual. As noted earlier, these bells weigh between 25 and 30 kilos in total. The straps contorting the body, pulling down the back and the spine, as I say, regularly leaving bruising behind them. Like the mask, worn for several hours, they underline the fact that what we're looking at here involves a particular act of endurance. That's not for the faint-hearted in any way, or the unfit. One can see very clear parallels to other customs like uh, centering around endurance, like that of the Burry Man in Queensbury near Edinburgh, in which the central performer is clad for a day in a day-long procession in sticky, stinging burrs and gets very, very hot inside there, often collapses too. Now, with regard to the routes taken through the upper and the lower town by the different groups after they'd left the church in January, these evidently vary and are essentially in the hands of the leading Isuatoris, who have the main aim of visiting all of the bonfires in the town. The route through the older upper town, taken later when the Mamatones return during the carnival period, the Shrove Tuesday and the previous Sunday, is nonetheless more decided, partly based on earlier tradition, but partly now on the need to accommodate tourists. After emerging from their headquarters, the performers, now numbering about 30 to 35 from both groups, start by going to the Bar Mele, or the wine cellar Cantina Arminius, which is marked on the map here, for some initial liquid lubrication. The formal procession of silent Mabatones, flanked by the Isuatores with their lassos, then slowly moves down the main roads of the Via Vittorio Emanuela and the Corso Vittorio Emanuela. And when they reach the main bonfire in the square, in the, in the front of the Chiesa Santa Croce church, they then circle the bonfire three times anti-clockwise before engaging in a traditional Sardinian circular dance. And the procession then moves off again now we're going up to, the, to another bar before returning to end in the central square. No other stops are taken on the way. As we can see from this description, and as Monica, Iorio, and Geoffrey Wall have noted in their recent article, there is little question that tr the tradition in its present form has developed in various ways over time. In addition to the development of the two groups, and the additional appearances that are now taking place at Shrovetide, especially for outsiders, a number of other changes have taken place in what seems to be, to what seems to have been the core of the tradition. According to the director of the museum, Mario Paffi, way back in the past, this tradition was something that took place around Halloween, at the beginning of the winter rather than at the end of the winter where it takes place now. And it used to involve the visiting of individual houses, much like um, one encounters, as I say, in Northern Europe traditions past and present. Now, whether that's true or not, the idea of the Mamatones blessing 
the village and its inhabitants is clearly reflected in Giacino Grego's statement that on the 17th of January, once masked and dressed, the Mamatones do their very best to make sure that they visit and, as he puts it, honour every neighbourhood in the village, dancing close to all of the bonfires where they're given wine and especially homemade cookies. As Gregor stressed, their appearance was considered by the whole community to be a propitiatory moment, people feeling personally offended in some way if the procession happens to miss out on any site, a feature, of course, one regularly encounters with regard to Nordic and North Atlantic customs. And as both Cesino Grego and Gionino Puggione stress, while the basic features of the tradition were largely the same back in the 50s and the 60s after the war, when the community was particularly poverty-stricken, both the masks and the costumes were commonly more often much more basic in form. At that time, it was known for some of the Mamatones to simply wear inside-out velvet jackets, their bells taken from local herds, then being rougher and less deliberately harmonious than they are today. Well, the masks, if they were worn at all, were often both heavier and somewhat tougher and rougher. Indeed, some people would just blacken their faces with soot, while the Isuatores, as I noted earlier, would often just use a piece of cloth or white cloth or a handkerchief with holes in it for the eyes. Common shirts being cut and then changed to form a bodice of some kind, somewhat like you can see in this image up, up here on the, on the top. But whatever guesswork is made about the ancient origins of the tradition, it is evident that the festival of St. Anthony, a key time of change for both the herders and farmers, has long been the time of the main procession, just as it is in the case of similar long-standing traditions found in two other nearby villages of Otana and then Oratelli. And in all of these cases, however, the maskers also nowadays make appearances at Shrovetide as part of Carnival. This is in addition to the increasing number of appearances at other masking parades that now take place all over Sardinia and abroad, a development I'll come back to in just a minute. The traditions that take place in Otana and Oratelli are clearly closely related and involve very similar features, all centering around these masked figures and skins and in Otana, not only horned beings, but also an intriguing female figure known as the filonzona, or the spinner. In both cases, those involved go out of their way to stress the ancient roots of what they're doing, something that was naturally taken up by most of the early Scandinavian scholars of these traditions when they started getting involved in the 1950s, following the initial work of a local scholar called Raffaello Maschi, who came from the local center of Nuaro. Now, many people like to point to the potential connections to the festival of Dionysus and the Saturnalia, Franco Stefano Rio, suggesting that the, the tradition originated in the Mycenaean with the Mycenaean and Greek migrations. The word mamatone coming from the ancient Greek word maimaia or manolis, meaning the possessed, the crazy or the wild. Rio points to also other potential connections between the place, Mamayada, and the place name Maimone, which is apparently also has several Dionysian associations and is often given to places with natural springs. Yet others have suggested that the name of the tradition comes from another word 
which is momote or moto, meaning death. Now, with regards to the tradition itself, some scholars propose links to the local Bronze Age Nuagic culture found all over the island, which is certainly left behind evidence of reverence of wells. But lacking any solid evidence for such links, some academics have pointed to even a sixth century letter from Pope Gregory, which complains about the enduring pagan traditions and beliefs of the barbaric people of this area, who are said to live like animals, whatever that means. But in association with such ideas, we do regularly also encounter a range of statements about probable connections to fertility and the cycle of life. Now, as Gregor stated in the public interview I took with him, in the end, I believe that the ritual represents the natural cycle of life, and we shouldn't look at the parade now, we should look at it as it was supposed to be in the past. Why did the elders taking on the role of the Mamatone carry all of that weight around while the young Isuatores were so light, showing their skillfulness? Why? In my opinion, that's the starting point, the end and the beginning of everything. It's nature, man itself. And when it comes down to it, bearing in mind the lack of solid evidence, such suppositions, when, can, when it comes down to it, can naturally never be more than suppositions. And a key problem is that while very similar traditions can be found on the Greek island of Skiros in the Sporades, there are simply no early written records from the Barbagia area or even written by visitors to it documenting the existence of such costumes in earlier times. Everything in this area was passed on orally. The earliest memories on record just going back to the late 19th century. The earliest mask that we have dates back to the early 19th century. To my mind though, as I noted earlier, there would seem to be little question that the traditions follow the same pattern as we find in Northern Europe and the Alps in their general association with the beginning and the ending of the winter season, and not least their intriguing connections with a female rather than a male figure, even though those taking part are all male. Throughout the North, we encounter regular associations between winter guising and horned bestial female figures, such as Grilla in Iceland, the Faroes in Shetland, Lucy and the Christmas goat, or the Eulegate in Norway. And then, of course, we have the Krampus and the Pechten in Austria, all of whom are traditionally acted by men. Other parallels can be found in the Kayak, or the Old Woman, who symbolizes winter in Ireland. And then we have Gurarisarova, or Gudrun, with the horse tail, who's supposed to lead the wintry wild ride in the mountains of western Norway. In the case of Mamayada, one notes this strange use by the Mamatones of the female headscarf, the vestiges of a skirt on the Isoatoris, and then we have this aforementioned central female filonzona or spinner with her distaff and, and her scissors. In short, while becoming a member of the Mamatones is a particularly macho matter, then we find, for example, Gregor suggesting that the matriarchal element has always been, to his mind, very important in Sardinia, and is something that can also be found in the archaeological remains from the Bronze Age. Whatever the case, there would seem to be remnants of something older and shared across a very wide area of territory, although how it got here, for example, from the Alps or vice versa is, of course, open to all sorts of questions. 
But two other aspects worth bearing in mind, though, in connection with the nature of the more recent ritual are the relationship that they have with the nobility of the area and the church, both of which have found themselves in various kinds of conflict with masking traditions elsewhere. Now, with regard to the former, in other words, the nobility, Gregor points to a member of the nobility called Don Raimodo Meloni, who in the early years of the 20th century not only had the role of an isoatore, but also regularly allowed the group to come and dress up in his closed courtyard. Now, while he might have had a name for the higher quality of his rather snazzy clothing, and not least his golden buttons, he evidently recognized the importance of this tradition in which not only identity, but of course all differences between classes naturally disappeared. The relationship with the church was evidently somewhat more problematic. Apparently, according to Gregor, in earlier times, the bonfire processions with the statue of the saint that I noted earlier also used to go round on the 17th of January. In other words, on the same day as the Mamatonis processions, something which on one occasion resulted in the two processions bumping into each other. As a result of this, the church decided they were going to move their day of the procession back, a previous, back to the previous day, thereby avoiding any direct connections with these Mamatonis figures. But particularly revealing about the village dynamics with regard to the tradition is a story told to me by Gregor by his uncle, told to Gregor by his uncle, another Isuatore, about how on one occasion, when a priest happened to be out and about at the time of the Mamatonis procession, he suddenly found himself being lassoed by one of the Isuatores, and he reacted promptly by cutting the lasso with a knife. The reaction from the group was apparently electrifying. Everything went totally silent. And the entire area just stopped. Everything stopped. The situation had to be speedily resolved by, a lo by the local authorities. The priest named Gasperi, who appears to have come from outside Sardinia, was then taken to one side and formally reprimanded for his behavior by the aforementioned Don Melone and the local mayor, another member of the nobility called Don Murgia. And clearly when it came down to it, the sanctity of the local tradition and its objects was much more important for the community than the essentially foreign church. The compromise arrived at led to the development of the tradition I noted earlier, whereby the Mamatonis procession now began with them circling the fire outside the church in the same space in which the statue of the saint had been carried around the previous night. Indeed, according to Bastiano and Giannino, nowadays the priests even offer the mummers a glass of red wine, so there's a mixing, but the priests are becoming much more local than they were in the past. But interesting as these matters are, I'm going to leave these interesting transgender, religious, class discussions to one side for now, because it's not so much the ancient roots and the beliefs that I was most struck by, as much as by other questions relating to the present and the future, and not least the potential conflict that's currently taking place between the local and the national with regard to the various types of Mamatone performance that a visitor is presently faced with as part of Scandinavian culture. As I've been stressing here both, and as Joris and Wall have noted in their valuable work, the Mamatonis traditions of the past were essentially something that was solely for the village and for its inhabitants. 
things have now clearly changed. Indeed, anyone who visits the capital of Cagliari nowadays, several hours' drive away from the village, is likely to come face to face with numerous souvenir shops filled with little Mamatones figures and miniature and full-size masks. And you then go on to the airport, and just across from copies of the Bronze Age Nuragic figures and statues is a full-sized Mamatone figure standing outside the main souvenir shop. Step inside, you can even pick yourself up a Mamatone's t-shirt to take home with you, or even a miniature Mamatone's bell. Check out the brochure for the island as a whole and what do we find on the cover but a photograph of one of the horned figures from Atana standing in front of a Christian chapel, accompanied by a headline underlining the cultural move from nature to civilization. In other words, the move from the ethnic and the natural to the universal and the bricked. And these days, dominated by this spiky red beastie, you can, of course, even get yourselves a Mamatone COVID mask. Now, this development is, of course, interesting in a number of ways. On one level, it's very reminiscent of the examples from Japan that Michael Dylan Foster's pointed out of certain local masking traditions being granted UNESCO status while others are put to one side. And one could perhaps could say the same with regard to the Native American artifacts one encounters all over the place in Santa Fe in Albuquerque, where I'm teaching this term. In Sardinia, however, I think things have gone much further, as it's clear that the rural local is once again becoming the urban national, something that, of course, was regularly encountered if we go back to the publications of various kinds of folk tales during the national romantic period of the 19th century that we're examining in our Grim Ripples project. In short, we're faced with questions of ownership and heritage, much like the other case studies that my colleague, Waldemar Hafstein, has been focusing on. And in the interviews I took in 2018, like Monica Yoro and Geoffrey Wall, I was struck by the various ways in which the local people of Mamayada seemed to be dealing with this development when I asked them about the potential effects it's having on the intrinsic nature, the dynamics of their traditions. And from my own personal side, I was also intrigued by the large range of different performances that seem to be taking place simultaneously as the Mamatones take to the streets on January the 17th. Performances that involve what I think is a very subtle cultural juggling act. It's logical to start by giving a brief introduction to the background of this particular development, explaining why the focus came to be on the Mamatones rather than on other groups in this particular area. Arguably, things started changing in the 1950s with the appearance of Raffaello's article La Maschera Barbacone, published in Il Ponto, and then various publications by the anthropologist Franco Cadnetti, which were based on his field research in the bandit communities of nearby Orgosolo. And it was the latter work that led to the arrival in the area of the Italian photographer Pablo Volta in 1954 and the resulting black and white photographs of the Mamayada Mamatones that he took in 1957, images that attracted international attention when they were published in the next foreign edition of Gagnetti's books. 
The pro-loco association had been set up around this time in, and in 1955, a regional institution for tourism invited them to send a group to take part in another traditional event known as the Cavacata Sarda, or the Sardinian Horse Ride, which takes place every year in Sassari in northern Sardinia something that was starting to take on the form of a more generalized procession of Sardinian traditional dress. Yet another step was taken in 1974, when the Mamatones were invited to perform as part of the opening ceremony of the European Championships of Athletics in the Olympic Stadium in Rome. Now, perform is the key word here, since now the group was on show to the world as representatives not only of Sardinia, but actually even ancient Italy as a whole. And for most observers here, the idea of the village, Mamatones, was clearly being replaced by something completely different. Now, this development of being asked to perform outside of town, both in Sardinia and abroad, continued over the next decades, something that naturally brought ever more outside attention to the custom and ever more tourists to the village in search of the real thing. Pro-local participants talk about visits to Sligo in Ireland in 2006, where they joined forces with the Irish straw boys and mummers as part of a procession through town. Other trips were taken to Cuba and then to the Milan Expo in 2015, and in 2018, the group was even invited to go to Singapore to take part in an international food festival. Members of the other Mamatones group have meanwhile tra traveled to Germany, France, England, Spain, Turkey, the Czech Republic. Do, one of the immediate results of these developments in the mid-70s was the formal establishment of the Pro-Loco Association and then that of the second Mamatones group, the Associazione Culturale Azene Becoi, by one of the leading, which was set up by one of the leading Isatora performers, Constantino Azene. The arrival of the second group was apparently not the result of any enmity or competition, or even a direct follow-up to the expansion of the town, something that actually commonly happens in masking traditions. As the town grows, it suddenly splits like an amoeba. But that didn't happen in this case. It seems to have taken place largely as a, res as a means of taking the weight off the pro-loco group with regard to the increasing demands for them to perform. It also allowed more men to participate, gave some necessary assistance with regard to reaching all of those bonfires in the same evening in the different areas of town. And certainly in this period, there does appear to have been a clash between the younger and older generations of participants, stemming from the feeling that there was now a need for a greater degree of organization in order to meet the amount of attention that was coming from outside. It seems to have been such pressure that led to the establishment of the two associations, which then continued to work quite effectively together. Note the fact, though, that they now also have websites designed for the outside world, one of them already in English. And they also, one of them has a nice slot where it's possible to make bookings for shows. Now, the next key development, though, following the increasing interest of anthropologists in the 1980s, was the, uh, was the active collaboration of the two associations in the establishment of the Museum of Mediterranean Mumming in Mamayada in 2002. An institution run as a local cooperative 
the museum has the aim of not only giving some depth to the Mamatones traditions for visitors, but also of introducing the other older traditions of this area of, Nuado, of Nuoro, and then placing them within the wider Mediterranean context. The museum also has the role of providing a safe home for the older masks as, they, as people get older. Initially paid for by both the municipality and the Italian government, there can be little question about the overall success of this place. According to Ioro and Wall, before the arrival of COVID, this museum was getting an average of 10,000 visitors a year and as many as 17,500 in 2012 a figure that gives some idea of the number of people that are nowadays flocking to Mama Yada to see the processions, and especially those that take place, as I say, at Shrovetide a little bit later on. A further step of internationalization can be said to have been taken when the museum itself went on to actively participate in the European IM Mask project, project on museums and intangible cultural heritage, a focus on European masking traditions, which was initiated by the International Carnival and Mask Museum in Binche, Belgium. Funded by the European Union and by UNESCO, that project led to a series of lectures and seminars and the publication of these books in the series here. But interestingly enough, the project centered around a very relevant question of what happened to the heritage called oral and intangible recognized by UNESCO. Now, as noted earlier, the development I've described here has gone on to result in the Mamatones mask seemingly becoming a national symbol for Sardinia, a key feature in all souvenir shops around Cagliari. One could thus argue that the Mamatone, in some ways, is becoming being turned into a kind of stuffed national mannequin available to be rolled out into any kind of surroundings. Alongside this, we suddenly find numerous other villages in the area noting the financial gains that have been provided for Mamayada, they've also started following suit by rediscovering their own versions of older traditions of Mamayada and Otana and Oratelli. As the director of the museum, Mario Pafi writes, during carnival, even in the summer, it's not unusual to find a number of costume parades taking place throughout Barbagia and the surrounding villages all through the season so that the greatest number of visitors can get a chance to see them. The phenomenon does act as a sort of showcase for folk heritage, but out of context, it somehow comes down to being a series of senseless exhibitions. The formal renewed emphasis on tradition gives rise to remodeled events that can easily become just performance shows, in as much as they aren't directly steeped in any form of genuine local tradition. As Mario adds, these Barbagia carnivals appear like a sort of tormented attempt to fit in at all costs with a new society, to jump on the bandwagon of history. The unswerving need to stand for one's identity that only pervades through anchoring in an outdated culture. What is today's significance and the importance of the carnival in the eyes of the Barbagian people? Is this custom actually still alive and meaningful? It's worth considering what the participants from Mamayada have to say about this. As Yoro and Wall have noted, there can be little question about the huge economic benefits that this development has had on an isolated area that was previously suffering in all sorts of ways. 
But as I say, at the same time, there's a feeling that the rite has become staged and its attendance turned into a liminal experience more than a sacred, intimate one, especially for the youngsters. Pablo Volta, when he returned to the village in 1981 and 2008, reached a similar conclusion, that now the protagonists of the rite are the tourists, and the rite, once appropriator um, of a good harvest, now appropriates the tourist season. Jesuino Grego says that he, like others, is actually well aware of this problem. To his mind, we have been coming out far too much lately, and I think the time has come to rein back and straighten out and attend only relevant parades that are really worth attending and stay more at home. At first, we went halfway around the world, and I guess it was positive, because today we're well known and the mask is representative of Sardinia to the world. However, I think we must go back and stay more at home. When you go out and parade, it should be something mean meaningful and targeted. It must be really worth it. We shouldn't just go to every little country festival. It's not good. And then he adds, this is a ritual. We must act accordingly. We can't trivialize, trivialize it. We've worked so hard to enhance it. And now it's true, we have been trivializing it a bit too much recently. Mario Paffi, the director of the museum, expresses similar sentiments. What matters, he says, is that it doesn't become something only for touristic purposes. And he adds, though, his feeling that here in Mamayada, there isn't that danger, but it's dangerous in other places because they're trying to revive the kind of things where it's not cared for, it's no longer felt, just in order to attract people. They have the UNESCO idea, but that requires a form of standardization. And note the way that Papi draws a line here between Mamayada and these other villages with their carnival parades that he feels are trying to jump on the bandwagon of history. And in this context, he also underlines the way in which in Mamayada, the cultural associations are now being particularly careful to rein in any attempt by younger people to emphasize the devilish aspects, to make the event more grotesque. Note the stress, too, that Pafi, like Grego, places on the difference between the carnival processions on one side and then those that occur at San Antonio, and the clear wariness he seems to have of the so-called blessings of UNESCO. Gregor also underlines what he feels as being a key difference between the San Antonio ritual and the carnival play. The difference that exists between performing elsewhere and then performing at home. It was a very strong ritual for sure. That's why it's been preserved, he says. In my opinion, it's not about carnival masks because the real ritual, the real ritual takes place on San Antonio's day in January. And if you want to get goose flesh, you should come on San Antonio's day. And he adds, if I parade in Cagliari, it has one meaning. In Mamayada, it has another one. And you can't even try and compare these two things. Now, the continuing deep feelings that the local people have about San Antonio are reflected also in the words of Giannino Puggioni that if this procession and if this tradition ceased, what exactly would happen to the community? It would be a great loss. Local people always, always do their best in order not to miss the parade. Any kind of effort is made in order to take part in this procession, despite the bad weather conditions or personal happenings like bereavements and marriage and so forth. People do feel morally obliged to be present for the occasion.
And indeed, the stress that Pugione and Gregor place on ritual and local community and local connection is also seen in the fact that while children are now being allowed to dress up on certain occasions as mamatones, and while the maskers, as you saw before, may now occasionally reveal their identity, there is still an emphasis, particularly in the pro-local group, of all the mamatones participants have to come from the village. The participation of children being seen really as a form of learning and even a sort of rite de passage. All in all, with regard to the question of whether the procession of the Mamatonis has lost its meaning for the local people with the advent of tourism and the adoption of the mask as a national symbol, I agree with the conclusion of Yoro and Wall that despite the increased tourist audience in San Antonio, it would be wrong to assume that the meaning implicit to the, uh, to the right has actually now been wiped out. For the local people, the event does remain a moment to receive blessings for the communities and the individual's prosperity. It also continues to be a ludic moment for the locals, which reinforces social relations and place attachment. In short, to the minds of Yoro and Wall, tradition and tourism has enabled the San Antonio Festival to bring together and protect a traditional cultural expression, while at the same time addressing the need for economic development in a way that's allowed Mamayada to open itself up to the rest of the world after so many years of isolation, marginality, and poverty. As they add, we believe that the Mamayada people are using their culture, no matter what, whether commodified or not, as a way of affirming their identity and telling their own story, which brings them pride and a positive attitude to the future and also builds, uh, builds empowerment. I think pride is the key word here, something seen in the way that the recognition of the tradition by the outside world has now started giving birth to some wonderful artworks that can now be found all around the town, works which are designed as much for the locals as they are for the outsiders. Interestingly enough, too, you don't find souvenir shops of the kind in Cagliari around here. You have to buy things like this by going to the museum. And if we go back to the question of exactly what's going on here, which I think is a key word in performance of any kind, what's going on here in terms of managing to keep a foot in both worlds, I think the uh, methodology associated with performance studies does provide some answers. Now, clearly the functions of what is going on in San Antonio, in the uh, San Antonio procession, vary greatly depending on exactly where you come from. And whether you are a performer from Mamayada or a tourist from the States. Over and above this, we have the question of time, place, background, association, all of which have particular importance and much greater depth for the local people. Greco underlines the huge difference, as you heard just now, the huge difference between performing outside the village, where he's essentially an actor, proud to represent his town and his country, and to show off what he does at home, and then when he performs at home where the temporal, the geographical, the social framework is totally different. Here in Mamayada, being observed by tourists is a sideline when it comes down to it. The heart of what makes everything different, where, when, the, when the custom takes place here, at this particular place, at this particular time, is of course the element of tradition, something that's not just about activity, but also about surroundings, participants, and time. 
but those people who preserve it for traditional reasons, underlining the importance of linking past and present. The date has long-term traditional associations, and the costumes are preserved and put on in traditional surroundings. The streets that you dance on today have been trodden on the same day by other Mamatonas for decades, if not centuries. The mask you now wear belonged to one of these Mamatonis who was related to you by blood and DNA. The strong element here, I think, of what Eliada referred to back in the past as sacred time for the participants. As various writers have noted, this element of a simultaneous range of, of different levels of meaning lying above and below the modern San Antonio festival is, I think, particularly pa apparent if you note the participants involved in the small convivial gatherings that take place around the bonfires at the end of the celebrations in Mamayada on the 16th and 17th. Because these gatherings tend to involve only local people. They underline again the aspect of performance frameworks that I was talking about. As in the, as in the masking traditions known throughout the North, the removal of the mask does mean reconnection with the community. And here, once the tourists have melted away, we are left with the core group for whom the day's performance has had quite a different meaning. When they sip their really excellent, rich local Cananao wine together around the fires, and they laugh and they converse in their local Sardinian dialect, they are stressing to each other the ties that continue to exist in a deeper bottom layer of unity community and communitas, a layer that can never be experienced by the tourists, and especially those who haven't visited the museum. Bearing this in mind, I think one can quite understand the statement given to Joris and Wall by one villager who said that when he dies, he hopes that he'll be buried as a mamatonis, wrapped in the tradition that's made him what he is, in other words, that underlined that he was an active, lifelong member of the village of Mamayada. Thank you. Soundlore is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Jeremy Reed. Music provided by Pagliotti and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Soundlore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Thank you for listening.